This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. Why does your nose look like your nose? Why doesn't it look like your elbow when the DNA in your nose and your elbow are the same? These seemingly simple questions have captivated Mina Bissell for the past 40 years. Bissell faced quite a bit of resistance when she first set out to find the answers. It was the 1960s and she was female, foreign, and had unconventional ideas. But she'd grown up surrounded by strong, educated women in Iran, so she never thought to give up. Instead, she persisted, and what she found changed how we think about cancer. Specifically, she discovered that the stuff around cells, molecules called the extracellular matrix, can determine whether cells stay healthy or become sick. Mina Bissell is a distinguished scientist in the Life Sciences Division of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2010. Well, my name is Mina Bissell. I am a distinguished scientist, and believe it or not, even though it sounds arrogant, it is an actual rank at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is a campus of University of California. So we are situated in Berkeley, and I was the division director for all of life sciences. And I stepped down because I love doing science. So where did you grow up? In Iran. I came here in 1959, and I uh, have not gone back since uh, the so-called revolution, because I'm a very outspoken person, and I probably would have gone straight to jail. But I came when I was very young, and I did my college and PhD here. Tell me about where you grew up. So what was the, your community like in Iran? What was your home like? Well, it was very Europeanized. Uh, Iran, uh, like, um, say, England or France, in fact, was a very class type of society. And uh, so if you were a member of upper middle class or whatever it was, your lifestyle and everything else just was no different than um, how people grow up in Europe. So my father was a lawyer and uh, my mother was the only member of her own family as well as my mom's, uh, my father's family uh, who quit college to get married and she did not like it. All my aunts were professors, and uh, my father and I would debate across the table the issues of the day. I was always very passionate about politics, and I was very passionate about art, and I was always passionate about a lot of things. So um, I was the top high school student in the country, And my father wanted me to go to England uh, because he felt that U.S. was a very young nation and they didn't know how to educate women. And I wanted to come to U.S. So I um, actually won a big award 
and I put my foot down and he was very liberal and very kind and very articulate and very educated. He had a PhD in law from uh, France and so um, I came um, and I came to New York barely 18 <laughs> when, where my uncle was a professor of mathematics and uh, I was there for a couple of months to learn some English. Uh, I knew a little tiny bit, like sit down, bow, do this, or <laughs> that kind of stuff. And uh, then I went to Bryn Mawr, uh, which I believe is the best uh, university or school in U.S. And is one of the seven sister colleges, is outside Bryn Mawr, uh, is outside Philadelphia. And um, then I met my husband at Persian New Year in New York. And he uh, was at Harvard, a graduate student. And so I transferred to Radcliffe. I uh, got a degree in chemistry, even though I debated between English literature and chemistry, because I thought um, I could probably do the literature on my own. You know, you're young, you think you can do everything. <laughs> And I had a daughter first year of graduate school at Harvard Medical School where I was getting my uh, doctorate in bacterial genetics. And in those days at Harvard Medical School class, I was not part of the medical school per se. I was getting a degree in bacterial genetics in the Department of Bacteriology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, at the medical school class, there were 200 men and three women. And um, so I got a PhD in um, bacterial genetics. And it was very difficult, as you can imagine, because this was 1960s. And I had no idea how difficult it was for American women, because that was not my background. <laughs> And it's really very interesting with this mess in Iran and, and all of the difficulties and uh, people's vision of what Iran is like is very, very mixed up. Uh, very few Americans know that Iranians are not Arabs. Uh, very few of them know that Iran is the same as Persia. Very few of them know that it had a history of 4,000 years um, and, and Iranians were very education conscious, achievement conscious. And uh, in fact, I understand uh, that the so-called mi Iranian minority in US is the most educated because education really mattered. And um, it's, it's very interesting. There was absolutely no question in my mind that I would uh, get a PhD or have a career. So if I hadn't done it, um, it would have been very difficult and, and complexing for my family. When I was pregnant first year of graduate school, my professor who was an Italian guy called Luigi Gorini at Harvard, a wonderful wizard in genetics, um, and who was quite liberal. He looked at me and he said, well, of course you're quitting. What's your mother going to say? Well, my mother calls and she says, you're not quitting, are you? And I said, are you kidding? I didn't know what the word quit meant. <laughs> you know, my role models were very different. And of course, it was very difficult. 
but but you know it it happened and then I actually got remarried and had a second kid and now I'm going to celebrate my 45th anniversary in a couple of uh, months and um, and uh, my son was born uh, eight years later and I have many many interesting stories to tell you but if I did that it would take the whole hour. So maybe I better stop because <laughs> I got my PhD and my husband and I came to San Francisco where he was born. And he was a medical student at Harvard Medical School. And we met over a centrifuge. So it was quite interesting. I sometimes lecture to uh, these fancy high school uh, classes, at least in the old days. In fact, one around here. And the young kids always want to know, well, how could you be a scientist and meet your husband? And I always say to them, I met my husband over a centrifuge, and he's the most handsome guy, he's six feet five, and all the women were all over him. And we had no problem meeting, so just relax. <laughs> so anyway, then we came, and I became a postdoc at Berkeley. And I started working with viruses and uh, tumor viruses and uh, cell culture and cell biology. And I literally fell in love with cell biology. In fact, I have an essay uh, called Cell Biology, colon, a Love Affair. And uh, I argue that I like cell biology because it was challenging. It was lovely. It was, it's one of those things that raises so many questions and so many lovely puzzles. And I was always curious and I just wanted to um, find out what was going on. But I also, um, I tell this to the students and fellows and uh, audiences I lecture, uh, that one of the disadvantages I had was that I had never taken really any biology. But, um, but um, I also had the advantage that I was not corrupted, if you will, by the textbooks or by being told that it has to be this way as opposed to that way. And from the very young age, as I told you, I was curious and I would debate and I would say, why? So I got fascinated with this question of how do we become who we are? The question of how you start from a single cell and not only you make your eyes and your eyebrows and your nose and your mouth and your elbow, but that throughout your life you remember to keep your nose as your nose and your mouth as your mouth. And this is really a big puzzle because what very few people, even a lot of scientists, think about it and understand is that you have 10 trillion to 70 trillion cells in your body. And I say to people, it's even bigger than the deaths of the United States. <laughs> so every one of them have the same genetic information. Every one of them have the same genetic information. So the DNA of an individual is the same in every one of their trillion cells. Right? So, how does your nose become like your nose and your mouth like your mouth? The genes are the same. Why don't you get up one morning and have your nose turn into your elbow? And it doesn't. Luckily for us. But, 
It's precisely when a cell doesn't know that it's supposed to be a nose or a skin or a mammary gland or a prostate or whatever that cancer begins to develop. And those cells just lose their way and they pile up and they start wandering around trying to find a home and in fact they make their own home. So um, I have spent literally 30, 40 years of my life asking why does the mammary gland know to be a mammary gland? How does it make milk? How does it remember? So we took the cells from uh, mouse that were making milk and put them in a dish, in a plastic dish. We gave them lactogenic hormones, the hormones they need to make milk. And within a day or two days, the cells started changing shape and completely forgot. So it said, that the cells again in culture on a dish were doing one thing and in the mouse were doing another. So why was that? And almost every cell in your body, one way or the other, is either in touch with another cell or is in touch with these very, very large molecules called extracellular matrix molecules, ECM, ECM molecules. Now, having been a chemist, I had no idea what ECM was. And I, had, I was very fortunate. I had a couple of very good postdocs, Glenn Hall, Rick Schwartz, who basically knew something about these molecules. And they taught me that these molecules do this. For example, collagen, that is everywhere in your body. Uh, but people always believed that these molecules had um, basically acted as scaffolds and that they kept the shape of the tissue. And around that time, people were beginning to think that maybe these molecules actually interact with receptors, but we really not yet had information about receptors that talk to extracellular matrix. So I wrote a theoretical biology paper in around 1979, published in January 1981 in Journal of Theoretical Biology. And I made a model. And I said that the extracellular matrix molecules from outside actually have information. And they probably, you don't have to be soluble like growth factors or hormones to give information. These, these things that are outside are actually talking to receptors, and these receptors are talking to what we refer to as the cytoskeleton of the cell. And the cytoskeleton of the cell and whatever it is inside the cell is talking to the nucleus, and the nucleus is talking to the DNA and chromatin. The, the combination of protein and DNA in the nucleus is called chromatin. And that it is that information that tells the cells to reorganize and express different genes. Because, you know, we, we have uh, uh, the same, again, the same sequence of DNA in the nose and the mouth. So clearly, there is selectivity on what tells the nose uh, to give the information for the nose and the mouth, the information for the mouth. And that that information then goes back outside, and I call this the model of dynamic reciprocity. 
And uh, it's interesting because almost everything I have said so far uh, has proven to be so. So we have shown that in fact these molecules have information. We know that there is specific molecule outside and that there is a lot of tissue specificity. The type of molecule that are outside in the liver are different slightly from the ones say in the mammary gland. The receptors are different. And of course they arrive at this in a very interesting way. But once they have arrived at it, as long as they retain some of the information on the surface, if you give them the right environment, they do the same things. So when we found out that the mouse cells wouldn't make milk in culture and looked very different, I have pictures of these beautiful mammary cells looking lush, having a bottom, having a top, having a gorgeous nucleus and secreting milk. And you put them in a dish and they get elongated and they lose polarity and they forget. All of them forget. And so we said, okay, we gotta find a way of making them to remember. So we put them in a very gelatinous looking, um, that looks like the extracellular matrix material that is outside the cells, in vivo of course, meaning in the animal, you have very little of this, but it's all organized. But there is a material that a, a particular tumor makes and, and they make a lot of this extracellular matrix material and it gels. So we put the cells in that and lo and behold, they went home. They made a little mammary gland and they got organized and they started making milk and putting the milk inside and putting the extracellular matrix outside. I wish I could show them the pictures of this to your audience. It's really, really beautiful. And so they make these beautiful amounts of milk and then one thing led to the other and we said, well, if the normal cells remember that they're supposed to be normal, could tumor cells be told that they are tumors when we put them in three dimension? Would they turn and become normal or would they remain as a tumor? And alternatively, if we destroyed this structure within the mammary gland of a mouse, it should eventually get tumors, even without giving them an initial oncogene, even without taking away the suppressor gene. And we have done both of those. We can take a real malignant cell, put it in these three-dimensional matrices, and then slow down, not necessarily the growth, but the rate at which they are metabolizing and they are passing molecules around because the balance goes when the cells are malignant. So if you put them in three dimension and slow down the rate of signals from outside to the inside, the cells reorganize and they think they're normal. And even though the genome is a mess, is a genome of a malignant cell, but the shape is normal. And if we take these three-dimensional structure which reorganize themselves and inject them into the mouse, we get no tumors. And if we dissociate them and add uh, some of this inhibitor, and the inhibitor that we use is inhibitor of one of these receptors that talks to extracellular matrix. It's called beta-1 integrin. And uh, so we use the inhibitor to beta 1 integrin because these tumor cells have five times the level or five times the level of epidermal growth factor receptor, etc. And we add this, 
everything else gets organized. It's absolutely boggles my mind. It's so beautiful. So I like to say to people that there is wisdom in your nose and that there is wisdom in your mouth, there is wisdom in your mammary gland. It's not for nothing that over these millions of years evolution has carved you the way you are. And so form and function are related dynamically and reciprocally. You mess up one, you mess up the other. And that's why aging is such a risk factor for cancer. Because as you age, the structures start going. You know these wrinkles? <laughs> I say to people, it's not good for you. <laughs> and um, I think I'm going to now stop, but I will give you my punchline. And that has to do with the fact that um, we know everything about the sequence of the genome. We know everything about the language of the genome. We know the alphabet of the genome. But we know nothing, nothing about the language and alphabet of form. Form, to my mind, is overriding cancer. Form is what makes you do all the things you do. And even in your brain, it's not only for the mammary gland. What I say is true of all your tissues. It's just that the details are different. And people try to find simple ways of answering questions and simple ways don't work. <laughs> and uh, there's a well-known scientist at MIT who, uh, who wrote um, an article about a paper we and others had. I have taught this technique to many, many people, and I have colleagues who are now using and doing experiments in three dimension. It took a very long time, and it was very difficult because people honestly uh, thought that I was just difficult or that I was saying things that didn't make sense because it was such a leap. And um, the only thing that I can say is that I persisted. <laughs> and I have written an article for Nature Cellbiology, one page uh, essays called Turning Point. And I talk about Turning Point during my PhD years at Harvard when I was working on something and I came up with a completely different theory. <laughs> And people said, you'll never make a scientist. And, <laughs> and I realized that the way to convince people when you have these leaps of imagination is to persist. Uh, how have you balanced this work, which obviously you're very passionate about and devoted to, with your family life? Badly. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think people who don't, uh, who don't do this kind of stuff do any better. You know, life is complicated. You make choices. So, um, so my feeling, though, is that it's a very important message to give young people, uh, male or female, uh, that you get the education you get um, and you need to do something good with it. You only have one life. You have to do something good. And so um, there is a lot to be learned and a lot to be done, and that's one of the reasons I refuse to retire. <laughs> I'm having too much fun. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.